Thank you, Caleb. Good morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Christian Cunningham. I serve as the Student Ministries Director here and oversee high school and middle school. Um, we are going to be in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 as our text this morning, so I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. And as you're turning there, I'd like to posit a few questions that are going to focus our time on what this sermon exactly is about. When I say the word God, Christians and non-Christians alike have a world of assumptions, conceptions, and ideas tied to that word God. Humans have grappled with the existence of God since humans have existed. Humans have questioned about what God is, what he's like. There are creation stories from various cultures, different levels of gods and categories of gods throughout world religions. And I've often heard people describe the Bible as God's love letter to humanity. While there might be some truth in that, I think it is somewhat misleading in that the Bible is God expositing himself. The Bible is God's self-explanation telling us who he is and what our plight is before him. The Bible fundamentally is uh, explaining God, a document of self-disclosure. God inspired scripture as a means to describe who he is and what he accomplishes in the world. The Bible exists as a description of God. And the question before all of us this morning is this. Is the God of our mind the same God as he has revealed himself in his word? Is the God we contemplate and consider the same God that revealed himself in the scriptures? And so my aim in this sermon is to expound the truth of God's word in a way that reveals who God is and help myself and us obtain a truer idea and understanding of God. And the, the foundational text for that is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Let's read that together this morning. This is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let's pray. Lord, I ask your word would not return void, but accomplish the purpose for which you sent it, and that purpose being that we would know God better, that we would know who he is, who you are, your plan of salvation from beginning to end, culminating in Christ. Lord, help our more accurate view of God. Help us to be merciful and gracious to each other, forgiving each other and our marriages, our parenting, our jobs, and also our membership to this church. Lord, help us to be more like you. I ask that your spirit would continually convict us of our sin and also comfort us in knowing that you are a merciful and gracious God. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. 
So if we were to survey the entire book of Exodus, it's primarily history, albeit theologically informed history, but when we get to Exodus 34, 6, and 7, it's almost more like poetry. There is syllabic relationships, there's consonants and assonance, alliteration, and more, but the most important feature for our purposes in this sermon is to understand the number two. And here's a chart that I think helps. The text begins with two declarations of God's name, Yahweh, that never happens anywhere else in the Bible to really get us to see this is God. Then he gives two words to describe himself, a God is, that is merciful and gracious. And after those two words, there's two phrases that describe who God is in himself. He is slow to anger and great in steadfast love and faithfulness. So after we get two pairs of who God is, that nature is expounded to what he does. And we have another two pairs of two, two positive and two negative. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But on the other hand, he will by no means clear the guilty and visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. So to summarize, we have two halves, each working with two pairs of two. Verse 6 is the first half describing who God is, the core of his nature and being. And the, verse 7, the second half, is what God does, his name in verse 6 and his way in verse 7. So with that, we can state our outline, our main point. Yahweh declares his name to be covenant loyalty and his way to be salvation through judgment. I'll say that again. Yahweh declares his name to be covenant loyalty and his way to be salvation through judgment. If we were to take all of the words in verse 6 and mash them together, the concept that's created is covenant faithfulness, covenant loyalty. And then if we cram all of what verse 7 says, we see it is salvation through judgment. And these concepts are helpfully illustrated in some um, other commentators, and I, I just want to attribute to them, Gentry and Hamilton, um, their work on this text was very helpful for me. So in short, God reveals his name as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's we will, where we will first turn in verse 6 in our first main point. Yahweh declares his name to be covenant loyalty. Let's read verse 6 once again. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, before we move to Exodus 34, 6, and 7, uh, we need to understand the context in which this glorious depiction of who God is is written. If I were to summarize the entire book of Exodus, its ultimate goal is for the divine name of Yahweh to be made famous among the nations. We see that it is God's purpose in saving Israel out of Egypt to make his name great. And in Exodus 3, we see God's name given to Moses. Most of us are familiar with that name, Yahweh. And in Exodus 3, it says, Yahweh tells Moses, I am who I am. But that I am is not Yahweh. In Hebrew, it's Ehyeh. 
which literally means I am. What we're saying is Yahweh, which is he is. Anytime we say the divine name, we're saying something about God. This is who he is, but we're left with the question, he is what? What is our God like? And Exodus 3 is the the beginning, the linchpin of Exodus expounding that, who is this God that we worship? Even Pharaoh himself asks, who is Yahweh? Who is this God that you worship? And Exodus 34, I think, is the linchpin verse for understanding what he is. But even before that point, we need to understand where Exodus 34 sits in terms of its even closer context. We see that this revelation of who God is is in the midst of a crisis. If you remember in Exodus 32, we see the people of Israel bowing down before the golden calf, worshiping an idol. We know from Exodus 20 that they knew the Ten Commandments, do not make a graven image, do not worship other gods, and yet they did. And the most striking thing to me is what Aaron says about this golden calf after he creates it. This is Exodus 32, 5. When Aaron saw the idol, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Here's a chart that actually shows these verbal correspondences between Exodus 32 and Exodus 34. It's almost as if uh, Aaron has the audacity and the boldness to say, this is our covenant God that brought us out of the land of Egypt and saved us, and I'm going to make a new Passover, as it were, a new festival to praise this God that we have created. And even further, he proclaims that this is Yahweh. It's the same verb used for God's self-proclamation in Exodus 34. And I think that has immense application for us today. Christians and non-Christians alike can easily conjecture and theorize about who God is. And we often hear from even Christians, I would never worship a God like that. God is not someone we can attribute attributes to. God is not someone that we can change. God is not someone we can modify or adjust to our preferences. God is who he is. No one controls him. He is God. And our task as Christians is to know more of God from his own words rather than to be like Aaron who declares, this is God. We're not to guess. We're not to conjecture. We are to read our Bibles. After this incident with the golden calf, we have three episodes of intercession or prayer that Moses has before God. And to summarize, I would propose that God is using these three intercessions, these prayers, to teach Moses his name. We know that God knows the future. We know that he doesn't change his mind. And we know that God uses prayer as a means to accomplish his will. But here is the fundamental reason why these prayers are recorded in our Bibles. Moses is wrestling with the question, who is Yahweh? And when God says yes to the prayer, it's always because the prayer is in conjunction with God's nature. And when he says no, it is not in conjunction with God's nature. So let's take these quickly, one at a time. 
The first intercession occurs in Exodus 32, 11 through 14. And to summarize this, the fundamental idea behind Moses' prayer is this. You must stay faithful to your covenant promises with Abraham. If you wipe out Israel right now, everyone will think you're unfaithful to your promises. God says, yes, I will not destroy them because my name is covenant loyalty. And the second intercession in Exodus 32, 30 through 35, we see Moses ask for forgiveness and appeal to make atonement for the people, which we think is a right impulse, but God says, no, I will not forgive this people. Why is Moses' request denied? Because Moses' request to forgive is against God's nature of his justice. Exodus 34, 6, and 7 reveals that God visits his iniquity, the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And it's the same Hebrew word in both contexts. Moses is realizing the weight of Israel's sin. He asks to be blotted out of God's book as a substitute to make atonement for the people's sin. But the request could not be met because only Yahweh himself can bear the punishment of sin. Only Yahweh himself, because Moses himself is a sinner. A, a sinner cannot represent sinners and bear the judgment deserved. And God says, I can't grant your request because I visit the iniquity of the people that sinned on themselves. That's why God says, no, his way is salvation through judgment. And Moses was not praying according to who God is. But that's not the end. Moses comes back and asks for forgiveness again, but this time the answer is yes. And this is in Exodus 33, 12 through 17. Earlier in Exodus 33, God says, you guys can go to the promised land, but I'm not coming with you. And the people mourn, and that is their first sign of repentance. And it is this repentance that we finally see God revealing himself more to the people of Israel. Israel moves from receiving judgment to receiving mercy because they turned from their sin of idolatry and recommitted themselves to God. They turned from their sin and believed in him. And in Moses' prayer, we see that he finally is understanding the name and way of Yahweh. Moses is beginning to see God's name as covenant loyalty and his way as salvation through judgment. Moses tells God that the people won't go because he won't be with them as a sign of their repentance. And that is when God says yes. That is what it means to be in the covenant, to turn from your sin and believe in God. And then Moses asks, show me your glory. He knows now that to really pray, to really intercede, we need to know more of who we're praying to. And so he asks, God, show me your glory. And we see a paraphrase of what we've already seen in Exodus 3. God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. But that's no different than I am who I am. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So finally, in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we see God is who he is and what that means. This is Exodus 34, 6. We see the name of Yahweh as merciful gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So as we expound these, we'll take these two at a time. These attributes, I would argue, are the core of God's nature. 
The words merciful and gracious are actually very, very rare words in Hebrew. Both occur only 13 times, nine of which are just quotations of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 in later passages. Every single time these words are used, God is the subject. Which means to me that there is a type of mercy and grace that God has that is higher, more beautiful, and more glorious than any of us can imagine, that it warrants its own word. And consider the great comfort that we have in these two simple words. God is merciful and gracious. The first two words he saw fit to describe himself, and he doesn't seek to balance it. He doesn't say the first two words to describe myself are merciful and just. He says merciful and gracious, and they are largely overlapping. It's like he's saying, I am more merciful than you can even comprehend. I am more gracious than you can even comprehend. His mercy and grace is deeper than we can imagine. And that mercy and grace is tied to covenant loyalty. Remember, they had just sinned. They had just broken covenant and worshipped a false god. And yet, he says, I'm going to grant mercy and grace upon you. Because I am always faithful to the covenant. And if that weren't clear enough, he gives two phrases that expound that even further. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it seems that God is piling on word after word and phrase after phrase that show that he is always faithful. He is always loyal to our covenant. The phrase slow to anger is an idiom in Hebrew that refers to God's patience his forbearance, his long-suffering. He's not quick to judge and condemn, but quick to show mercy and grace. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, you've heard me say before, those two words, chesed and emet, refer to God's covenant keeping. It is a unique love and truth that is only within a covenant relationship. It's like a husband and wife's unique love that is exclusive to everybody outside of it. Only they share in that unique union. And what's important for us is God is not only slow to anger with us in our sins, but he eagerly pours out covenant love upon us. It's not as though God tolerates us or has a low-grade frustration behind his face. He has abundant love for his people. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is Psalm 103, 8 through 13, where David is simply meditating on what it means that God is merciful and gracious. Let's read that together. This is Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And this is simply David's meditation on what that means. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he does remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I find it amazing that David saw it fit to write a song simply meditating on God's name. And so I think that warrants us 
to meditate on what it means that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that is the greatness of his love for us. As far as the east is from the west, which cannot be measured, that is how far the transgressions are removed from us. That's what it means for God to be merciful and gracious. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He is patient with us in our failures and in our covenant breaking. So to summarize, there is a unique type of mercy, grace, patience, and covenant love that God has for his people. And as we remember the whole of the book of Exodus, we see God seeking to reveal his name, who he is, and what he is like. And at his core, this is our God. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But before we move on, if Ephesians 5 says that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children... Would the first two words people would describe you as, would they be merciful and gracious? I can't say that is true of me. If we asked your spouse the first two words that come to mind, would it be merciful and gracious? Would your friends, coworkers, those that are around you day to day, characterize you as someone that is merciful and gracious, eager to forgive, eager to show love and grace. Even further than that, what about the fellow members of this church? We are covenant members, are we not? So when our fellow member breaks covenant and sins against one of us, should we not show the same love that God showed to us and sending him his own son? to pay the penalty for sin? That is who our God is, and that is who we should be. Now that Yahweh reveals his name, we need to understand how that manifests. These are the core attributes of God, but how does that actually manifest itself? And that brings us to our second point. Yahweh declares his name, or rather his way, to be salvation through judgment. Salvation through the judgment. This is verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. As I said in the introduction, God's way is described in two pairs like the rest of the text. The first two are what some would call positive, and the second two are what some would call negative. Therefore, I describe his way as salvation through judgment. And with that, we'll take one phrase at a time. First, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Second, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Third, not clearing the guilty. And fourth, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. But before we get to that, I want to remind us of one thing. None of these four ways of Yahweh can be divorced or separated from who he is in his nature. God's covenant loyalty must be just. God's covenant loyalty must visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. That's what it means to be loyal to the covenant. It's not like we can cast out the judgment parts because they don't sound very merciful and gracious to us. 
This is the outpouring of God's nature as he describes himself. So first, God keeps steadfast love for thousands. And we see the word steadfast love or chesed once again. And this means that God keeps loyal to the covenant for thousands. Well, thousands of what? Well, I think that there is a connection with this positive phrase of steadfast love for thousands with the last phrase, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And I think if I'm right in that point, we could translate this thousands of generations in contrast to Yahweh's judgment to the third and fourth generation. And I'd also like to add the depth of God's steadfast love for us. The text doesn't say that God has steadfast love for thousands, which is the normal way of describing it in the Bible, but keeps, guards steadfast love for thousands. And that is a much stronger, deeper way of describing it. Peter Gentry states it this way, God earnestly maintains and preserves his faithful covenant love to his people. Now, before we move on to forgiving iniquity, I want to say something that I think is a plague around many churches that call themselves Reformed or Calvinist. I think we walk around with a low-grade guilt thinking that God reluctantly forgives and simply just holds back his wrath against us. And that could not be further from the truth. God delights to forgive us. And this text reveals an asymmetry in the nature of God. He keeps steadfast love for thousands of generations while simply visiting iniquity to the third and fourth generation. While I want to affirm that when God acts, all of the actions are working together, it's not like he can do something that's unjust. But the deeper core of God's nature is loving mercy. There is a hierarchy to the attributes of God. And even a rough glance at the text, you don't even have to get into the deep literary structure. 75% of the text is devoted to God's love and grace. He is constantly delighting to press into our brokenness, delighting to forgive us. And so why do we walk around thinking like God is disappointed with us if we're a Christian? All of our sin has already been paid for. There is no reason to feel guilty for your sin. We should feel convicted of our sin. But we should always know that God's steadfast love is for thousands of generations. So first, we saw that God keeps steadfast love for thousands. Second, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The overflow of God's name as covenant loyalty means that he forgives. And consider what that means. Forgiveness implies that there is some covenant breaking that we need to be forgiven for. It implies that we sin and need that forgiveness. And it's as if God says, my name is covenant loyalty, even when you are not. My name is covenant loyalty, and I will forgive you even when you fall short, even when you break the covenant relationship. And remember, Israel just broke covenant in the story. They worshiped an idol and said, this is the God that saved us. And yet God forgives them of their sin and their covenant breaking, even though they by no means deserve it. And furthermore, if you were to read through Genesis and Exodus, you see many instances 
where God himself absorbs the judgment necessary for covenant breaking. In Genesis 15, when God has a covenant ceremony with Abraham, the, the ceremony entailed that both parties would walk between the pieces of two animals cut in half to show, let this happen to me if I break this covenant. God himself walks between the pieces as if to say, when I break covenant, or if, if I break covenant, I will bear the judgment. If you break covenant, Abraham, I will bear the judgment. We also see in uh, Exodus 16, when Israel complains in the wilderness about not having enough water, and Moses is commanded to strike the rock, the text says that Yahweh is to stand on the rock, and Moses is to strike Yahweh, as if he bears the punishment for their sin of complaining. And I'm sure you can see the connection that easily manifests itself in Jesus, who bears the punishment for our sin. The core of God did not change from the Old to the New Testament. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God himself was constantly bearing the punishment. And don't miss the application here. In Exodus 20, we see them break the commandment, don't worship other gods. In Exodus 32, they break the commandment. And so when others sin against us, is our gut impulse to forgive or to have retribution? When somebody sins against us, are we inclined to show grace and mercy or are we inclined to hold on to bitterness? God eagerly and readily forgives those that break covenant, but we hardly forgive each other for inconveniences. Now there are some, maybe some deep hurt that has come upon you and some really ugly sin that has come upon you but we are called biblically to forgive the same way that God has forgiven us. And that doesn't ignore or get rid of the sin that's happened, but we are called to forgive in the same way God forgives. So first we saw that God keeps steadfast love. Second, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Third, he will by no means clear the guilty. Now, if you are new to Christianity, if you're visiting with us, You've liked the sermon so far. It is at this point where we get tripped up. I can worship a God who forgives very easily. I can worship a God who loves me. I love myself very much, thank you. I can worship a God that shows grace, but I can't worship a God who's about judgment. And I can sympathize with that to some extent. However, the God of the Bible reveals himself in this way. And we can see that if God can't really love anybody, if there is no justice at all. Now, some of you might even have the question, in what way does God's name as loyalty to the covenant manifest itself in judgment, not clearing the guilty? Well, consider what covenant loyalty means by virtue of an illustration. Just as a husband and a wife have unique covenant love for their spouse, we would seek justice upon anything that would hurt or cause harm upon them. And in the same way, if there is a covenant loyalty that God has for his people, those outside of the covenant that seek to set themselves against God deserve judgment, and they cannot be separated. That is why God will never clear the guilty. Fourth, God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. 
Now here's where we need to pay careful attention to what we just read. The word iniquity in verse 7 is the same word as iniquity in verse 6. So does God forgive iniquity or does he visit iniquity? That's the tension that's built into this text. Well, there is that tension, but I think the text itself resolves when we consider the context of Exodus 32 through 34. Remember, we just saw Israel commit great iniquity in Exodus 20, or excuse me, Exodus 32, by worshiping the golden calf. God's initial act was to judge them, and then when they repented, he forgave. So I think the impulse that we need to have is repentance. Now, what does it mean that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children? Doesn't God visit the iniquity of the sin on the sinner? This doesn't imply a type of generational curse, but it does reveal that the sins of the fathers are often committed in the same way by their sons. We see that all throughout Israel's history, where a king of Israel would establish uh, Asherah poles and worship Baal, and then the next king would come, and it says he committed the same sins as his father. And there is that constant drive throughout until, well, they ended up in exile. But another text portrays this same phrase, and I think it sheds light on what it means. Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bound to the idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am jealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, and this is the important phrase, of those who hate me. So I think this passage reveals that God is not going to visit the sin of the fathers on repentant children, but unrepentant children. However, we know that the father leads his home, and if he leads his home into sin, it's easy to see that children naturally follow that same cycle. And that pattern is clear throughout the history of Israel, and we see it in our own day as well. Exodus 34 verse 7 then is more about visiting iniquity of unrepentant people upon unrepentant people. So to summarize where we've been, we've seen that the name of God is covenant loyalty. We, we see that he's always faithful to keep his end of the covenant. He's always faithful to his side of the agreement, even when we are unfaithful. And we have seen God's way includes keeping that covenant love for his people, forgiving them of their sin, but also judging those that are unrepentant in them. And these are all beautiful and glorious things that have not changed about God. He's unchanging from Old to New Testament, but there is an inherent problem in the Old Covenant system, and that is the heart of the Israelites. It is a mixed group of people where there are some who are covenant breakers, and there are some who are covenant keepers and repentant. And that inherent uh, contradiction, that tension is what Jeremiah meditated on when he was considering the new covenant. This prompts Jeremiah to write Jeremiah 31, 29 through 34. And I'll read that to us. In the days of the new covenant, the people shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on the edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be shut on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel 
and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Do you see all the parallels with our text? No more will the fathers eat the sour grapes and the children bear the punishment for that. No longer will uh, there be a mixed group of people where there, where there are some unrepentant and some repentant. In Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant, there will be no need for me to evangelize to another covenant member of my church because everyone will be a believer. And verse 29, and I'm sure some of you were incredibly confused. What does it mean to even eat sour grapes and then teeth being set on edge? What does that mean? It's tied to Exodus 34 where the father sins and the children bear the punishment of that sin. And so the people that were saying that at the time were like, God's nature is inconsistent. And then Jeremiah says, there's going to be a time in the future where that won't need to happen because the covenant is so entirely new and greater. The people of Israel broke covenant by committing spiritual idolatry with a golden calf. And instead of putting God's law outside of them again with a new set of Ten Commandments, those commandments are written on our hearts. Jeremiah says that the reality of God's nature doesn't change. Moses had to encourage his people to know more of God. Jeremiah says that's not going to be the case anymore. Everybody that is in the covenant today has faith in God. However, God's name of covenant loyalty and his way of salvation through judgment does not end in the Old Testament. God's name and way find their ultimate expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Moses asked to see in that? He said, I want to see your glory. God says, I will show you my back, for no one can see my face. If we look to Jesus, that is God's face. And do you remember a time in your Bible when Moses' request was answered? When he saw God's face? In Matthew 17, 1 through 3, Jesus took Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Moses' request was answered. He saw the face of God. Just as Moses was on a high mountain, the disciples found themselves on a high mountain. And Moses finally saw the glory of God's face before him. And as we look at the life of Jesus, we see the face of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus motivated by compassion to heal people, However, the greatest manifestation of God's steadfast, covenant, loyal love is when Jesus died on the cross for our sin. 
And the people in the covenant now are those that turn from their sin and believe in Jesus. Jesus began this new covenant to give us full and final forgiveness of sins. And there is no one that is truly in the church that does not believe in Jesus. So we see that God's name as loyalty to the covenant ran so deep that it motivated him to add to himself a human nature, to bear the curses of the covenant on himself. Moses asked that his own name would be blotted from the book. And God, in one sense, did that for us. God's purpose was to bear the punishment of our sin on himself. So if you are not a Christian here this morning, believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. God is ready to forgive if you would turn from your sin and believe in him. Believe that God does judge and visit iniquity on the people who do not repent from their sin. Believe that God does delight in showing you that forgiveness once you turn to him. And if you are a Christian, see that God is always willing and eager to forgive you. That is the core of his nature. See that God is always loyal to the covenant when we are not loyal to him. See that God's loyalty motivates us to show mercy and grace to each other to our children, to our spouse, to our coworkers and friends, and most of all, to the fellow members of our church. Would it not be such a glorious witness for Jesus if we loved each other in this church the way God loves us, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love? So as we close, we must remind ourselves that knowing more of God is not an exercise for the theologians and preachers. Knowing more of God is our highest goal and endeavor. God has revealed his name and way in the whole panorama of scripture. And in one sense, the whole Bible hangs on God's revelation of himself. It is our duty and also our delight to know more of his name. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland discusses this text, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And in that chapter, he helpfully diagnoses something that I've attempted to draw out this whole sermon. Here's what he says. The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He continues, perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place. I want to say that again. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place. Church, know your God. Church, see who he is as he has revealed himself in his word. Know that he is merciful and gracious, that he is temperate in his anger, that he is great in his loyal love and truth, that for thousands of generations, he keeps his loyal covenant love, 
And in that loyalty, he will forgive even when we fall short and break the covenant. But for those of us that are unrepentant, he will surely not leave the guilty unpunished and visit that iniquity on the children. This is our God. Worship him every day. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so humbled this morning, unable to even consider with the full breadth and depth that we should how great you are, how amazing your grace is upon us. Lord, we are so sinful to a depth we can't even understand. You understand, and you still forgive. Lord, help us worship you in spirit and in truth, knowing who you are. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.